When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. It used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria, or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke, as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some topping, your uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. This is Episode 2, History of the Pizza World, Part 2, Pizza Poets and Prison Pies. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Along with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, we'll chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its story past are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. In episode one, we gave pizza a home. Now that we've led into all of ours, let's see how pizza plays a role in personal histories, from that of pizza champions to those championing pizza for change. What we've learned so far is that pizza is indeed of Italian descent, but how did that change with the Italian-American hyphenate? 
who are these Nona's behind Grandma Slices? And do you remember a time when pizza parlors were where we gathered, making them central to who we were as a people? There have always been different slices for different folks, and that's really the story here, that pizza can be the personification of who we are. I was born and raised in Mexico City, and it wasn't like a huge thing, but I do remember celebrating a birthday at Shakey's Pizza. It was a Shakey's Pizza in Mexico City, and I'm talking about eight. I was eight years old, and I'm 47 now. So this is way back. And I remember it being something familiar, but not at the same time. Well, I um, vividly remember going there, uh, being taken there as a kid. And at the time, Shakey's was a very big pizza chain. And it still apparently has a large presence in Asia and maybe a few parts of the U.S. But it was the dominant chain for a long time. They had a uh, window onto the kitchen where you could watch them making the pizza. They had these signs on the uh, various funny signs on the different refrigerators that they had. Isoboxa, more isoboxa, um, uh, stuff that would probably be in poor taste today in some cases because it was lampooning an Italian accent. But you could stand there and you could watch them make the pizza which I was fascinated with. And then, of course, it came to eating it, and I was fascinated with that part, too. Shakey's Pizza opened in Sacramento, California in 1954. Within three years, they expanded its franchise model and opened pizzerias all over the country. But if we consider the 21st century, the modern history of pizza in the United States, much of it seems to reference another California cultivar, Tony Gemignani chef, owner, and operator of dozens of pizza-focused restaurants throughout the Golden State. Though born in the East Bay, his pizzerias are mainly based in San Francisco, the Golden City. Right in the heart of North Beach, a small enclave that's rooted in Italian heritage and accented by the spirit of the beat generation. I don't know if Ginsburg ever howled about pizza or whether Burroughs had a naked lunch there with, maybe Kerouac took a slice on the road? But Gemignani has unequivocally influenced American pizza culture like no other, that he might as well be considered a pizza poet. Pizza wasn't a big part of our lives until my brother got into the business. Farming was definitely a big part of our lives growing up. My brother had the idea of opening up a pizzeria when I was 17 years old, and that's when I got into the business, and that was about 30 years ago today. It was called Paisano's Pizzeria, with a Y, in a strip mall in Castro Valley. It had that 80s, 90s pizza parlor vibe with video games in the back, a place where a lot of high schoolers had their first jobs, or a place where you return to work after the first year or two of college, kind of like Tony. Thirteen years ago, he opened his own place, Tony's Pizza Napolitana. And the rest is, well, history. You know, my brother Americanized it. My grandfather used to call all of our friends Pig Paisans when they come over because he never remembered anybody's name. And he, you know, he put a Y and a Z in it. It's totally not Italian, but it was easier to pronounce. It's not Paisano or, or how you may see it if you were to try to say it correctly. I want to talk a little bit about heritage because do you consider pizza inherently Italian uh, or has that changed over the course of your career? No, I always relate pizza to. Italy, especially Naples. I mean, yeah, there were always flat pieces of bread with different ingredients on it. 
all around the world in Greece or the Etruscans. But when it came to the tomato and the mozzarella and for it to be called pizza, it, from my understanding, it really kind of originated in Naples. I've been to Naples quite a bit over the years. And uh, yeah, I always think of uh, pizza is definitely Italian, but it's worldwide now. So it's anyone and everyone really. <laughs> I mean, your restaurants span from classic Italian to classic American, Sicilian, Neapolitan. Is there anything classic about pizza anymore or has that morphed as well? You know, there's some classic to it. It's definitely evolved. I mean, going into places and I'm saying it's New York style or Detroit style or St. Louis, you know, I, I look at it because I've been to those cities or those states and areas all around. If you've been there and you understand the type of oven or maybe the type of flour and definitely the cheese that's used on those pizzas, you know, there are traditional authentic pizzas still being made, like in Naples. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a big evolution of that. It's very chef-driven now. It's combining Roman and Detroit and making this hybrid uh, of pizza. And, and, and a lot of people are doing it. I mean, and we're free to do whatever we want when it comes to cooking and in general. I, I like traditional for sure. But at the same time, the chef in me like tends to want to think outside the box once in a while. You know, I, I've, I've always looked at pizza as, as being very much like pasta. And it, it was so territorial. You know, New Yorkers hate Chicagoans. And, and this is our pizza. And we make the best and blah, blah, blah. And you don't hear that about pasta. You know, when you say, oh, I love linguine, hate spaghetti. Or I love manicotti. I can't stand lasagna. So when you see people talk about pasta, you never see anyone talk like that. But when you think about pizza, it's it's super territorial from Roman to, to Napoli. So for me, I, I, I celebrate all pizzas. I mean, what intrigues me more is to go to a pizzeria in a town that's been there for 60 years and just seeing what they're doing. I think that's, I don't know, that's sexy to me. I, I Sometimes people say, hey, did you go to this new place? And what'd you think? I, I, I don't know. A lot of the new guys are, are it's great and everything, but I, I guess I'm a, just an old soul and a traditionalist. And I love to see what, how pizza was made, you know, 50, 60, hundred years ago. Jim Niani goes on to praise Frank Pepe's and Sally's in New Haven, Buffalo style pizza from Bocce, Detroit style from Buddies, and a lesser known Chicagoan named J.B. Alberto's, which has been around since 1967. Their adherence to their personal histories lionized them in his eyes, but Tony's willing to tweak tradition ever so slightly. You do a lot of pizzas that have that hyphen style. So the, the suffix is about a style. So does that mean you're actually trying to do the traditional or you're trying to riff on it because you yourself aren't in Chicago, you're in San Francisco? I do a little bit of both. I always think, you know, when I wrote a book, The Pizza Bible, I um, was working on different techniques. And here's a good example. The Chicago style pizzas, you know, traditionally how I make it, I make it more on the cornmeal uh, route that has um, a high fat content like butter and lard in it. Uh, use Sarasota flour, which is very traditional with straight yeast, no starter in that uh, particular dough recipe. So making that dough, building that pizza with, you know, sliced mozzarella on the bottom, fresh pinched sausage in that pizza and whatever other ingredients, you know, you're always trying to make a better bake. You're always trying to look at a faster bake, possibly when you have a restaurant and you want to turn and burn. So you're kind of looking at this pizza that's like about a 30 minute pizza cooked at around 500 degrees in a deck oven. And you're looking at it saying, how can I make it 
stronger, faster, better. It's almost like the bionic man. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and there's a technique of uh, laying your sauce down at the end that I learned in Detroit from a guy named Sean Randazzo. And it was making Detroit style pizza and putting, rather than putting the sauce on top before the bake, you put it uh, on post bake. So when I learned that method, I loved it. And it was a much stronger pizza, better pizza, less soggy pizza, less wet pizza. And the sauce didn't really have time to cook out into that pizza. So I tried that technique on my Chicago deep dish. So you'd layer it, bake it. The bake was seven, eight minutes faster. I applied the sauce at the end of the bake, you know, cut it, sauced it, then finished it with oregano or garlic oil and Romano. So there are little steps that I do that a traditionalist in Chicago would say, well, we don't do it that way. (laughs) But it's not necessarily wrong. It's just kind of an extra couple steps that just changed it up a little bit. Is it 99% right? Probably. Is it 100? You know, we're not in Chicago. (laughs) But um, I guess you could say it's pretty damn close. And at the same time, it it may just be a better pizza um, because of the technique and a few little tricks to the trade. Very much like the hand pinch mozzarella when I do with Neapolitan, you know, traditional way of, of, of making a Neapolitan margarita in a 900 degree oven is to, you know, fillet your mozzarella, have it on your line. It's kind of sitting there. It's wet. It, it had a chance for that, uh, for it to kind of ooze out and you just grab it and throw it in the middle and throw your basil on it, stretch it out, land in your oven. Why hand pinch an Ovalini? to order on our margaritas. And when you look at an Ovalini, which is a four ounce mozzarella fior de latte that's fresh, the outside of it is very much like a Cadbury egg. It's, it's, it's a sealed on the outside and in the middle is that, you know, delicious ooziness of, of that cheese. So pinching that cheese off and laying skin side down when you make a margarita doesn't allow it to be as wet of a margarita. So am I using the same mozzarella? Yeah. Am I using the right amount? Pretty much. Am I using a different technique of applying it on? I am. So Neapolitan be all like, we don't do it that way. But if I were to feed it to you and give it to you, you say, oh, this, this is a margarita, 100%. So little things like that. I look at pizza and say, huh, how do we make it a better but not get out of the traditional, authentic kind of realm? What are other tricks of the trade that have made ripples through the industry that you don't just do yourself, but you've seen now carry into other kitchens? Sometimes cracker thins, you know, you see, look at tavern style pizza, which is really getting popular right now. And you look at parbakes in a cracker thin or parbake in a Sicilian or a grandma or Detroit. A lot of times people look at parbakes as being, oh my God, he's parbaking it. And you think of that cafeteria style pizza, but not when you go to Italy and you get trained in pizza, which, which I did, you know, when it came to a Sicilian, a pizza in Italia, pizza in the pan. The correct way to teach somebody is to parbake it. It's a, it's a sealed crust. It's crispier, cooks better, stronger. So you see a lot of people going to the parbake method in those particular styles that I mentioned. And it's important to kind of take your head out of the game and don't worry about like hashtag never parbaked or you get people like that, that are online saying like that they think parbake is a bad thing. It's just, they just weren't really, they don't really understand the methods in it. And, it's actually a good thing. One way to do it is to parbake that cracker thin for a minute or two on that deck, pull it out, sauce it, cheese it, finish it, and then go ahead and put it back in the oven. 
people were kind of swallowing their pizza pride and they're saying, oh, okay, well, maybe it is better. I'll tell you right now, if you put them next to each other side by side in a contest, it, the Parbake will win nine out of 10 times. Uh, and, and if you ever compete in Italy at the world championships and you're looking at the Roman division, the pan, the pizza pan division, all these different divisions, 99% of those guys that are competing from around the world are par baking. So it seems like the new history of pizza is very much about the, the science and application. Um, do you also see it in the personalities? Like who, who are the new guard of pizza these days? You know, Laura Meyer, some names here that I'll, I'll mention, Audrey Sherman, you think of Nino, Coniglio, um, Chris Decker. Those are some names. Jeff Smokovich. Some of these guys uh, and, and women are, are, are pretty awesome pizza makers. Um, some of them have won some titles. Um, they're just doing some awesome pizzas. Some of them are doing naturally fermented pizzas. Some of them are doing Detroit-style pizzas. Laura's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I mean, she is dominating the pizza industry, and, and she knows a lot of styles. And if you were to throw something in front of her and say, make it and do this style, she's she's one of the few that can kind of tackle anything. Now, it would seem silly not to follow up on that thread about Laura Meyer. While she's the head chef at Tony's Restaurant at Capo in San Francisco, she's also an instructor and teaching assistant for the International School of Pizza, also run by Tony. But even before that, Laura sought a degree in history, and that understanding of the past informs her pizza present like no other. Yeah, so when I first started, it was mostly because my parents and my family, actually it was my two older brothers, were yelling at me to go get a job. Um, So I went and got a job, and it just so happened to be Tony's restaurant with his brother. And I grew up in a very food-friendly household. And when I went to college, it was a struggle for me to figure out what I wanted to study. And when I finally figured out I should study something that I love, and that was history. And as I was cooking and studying at the same time, I learned more than anything that I like the history of people and kind of what makes people tick and what kind of motivates people. And that one of the main things is always food. And so learning how to kind of interrelate food and how sociable of a a thing it is and how everyone loves it. Everyone has an opinion on it. And pizza is just one of those things. And so I've kind of always put those together and I've always liked to do the social history behind it. And food is always present. And so that's why pizza is kind of it for me. So what was that pizza event for you? What made you not only follow this path, but realize that the epitome of yourself is pizza? You know, people have always asked me, you know, what, what are you going to do? Are you still going to do this for the rest of your life? And when I think about like what else I would do with my life, (laughs) I always come back to pizza. It's that thing that I always end up thinking about every day, all day. It's kind of like this quiet passion that I have that kind of this slow burn almost where it's this something that always creeps back into my, into my thoughts and into my day-to-day life. And it's just, it's that one thing that is always present and that I'm always kind of finding a new passion for, um, something that excites me, whether it's a new tidbit about olive oil that has completely changed my concept of dough and what I can do to it and manipulation and learning more about the science. And when I think about everything else in my life, 
nothing holds my attention as much as dough and pizza does. <laughs> what may have been a quiet passion, Meyer has made her presence known and is quite competitive even if she doesn't say so herself. In 2013, Meyer entered the Pizza Integlia, Pizza in the Pan, division in Parma, Italy, and went on to win first place as the first female and first American to win in that category. Yeah, even the, I think Tony at one point had said something about, because he's the one who told me that I was the first, and he had never won first place at that competition. It was cool because it was one of those being the first and being mentored by Tony as someone who's been in this business and has won ton of competitions before I even ever entered the ring and to have kind of beat him to the punch (laughs) in a sense was kind of cool. And it was definitely, it was an experience. And when they announced me as a winner, they, they had to retract their statement because they announced the winner as a male. And then because the word in Italian can be masculine or feminine, depending on who they're talking about. And they had to actually re-announce the winner as a female and and as it was me. And it was interesting that they would, whether they knew it or not subconsciously, that they had just assumed that it would be a male. And even to this day, there are, there are more women present at these competitions, especially in Italy, and more women that are winning. But it's still almost odd to them that a female would win. Myra is part of a group of women who call themselves Women in Pizza. From what started as a text chain became a social media platform to support other women in the industry. When it comes to the personalities and the people that are at the forefront of the pizza industry um, and the culinary world in general. I definitely think that for a really long time, for the majority of the time, it has been a very male dominated industry in the sense that the men are usually the ones that are the most vocal and at the forefront, that they're usually the ones that you see first and the ones that you hear first. Whereas I feel like we are in definitely in the midst of a change. You are definitely seeing a lot more women being vocal and using their voice and being just being physically present. It's so funny to me that the vision of a whole bunch of Nona's cooking Italian food, we're, we're complacent with that, but not when it comes to pizza. Yeah, I, the thing that I always kind of think about is we always talk about, everyone loves to talk about their food memories as children is of their moms and their grandmas cooking in the kitchen. And that is an amazing experience. And that's an amazing memory to me, but that doesn't translate to the business world. And for me, women in pizza, it's about being able to say like, yes, I am a female. I, you know, grew up with my mom and my grandma cooking for me, but that doesn't mean I'm relegated to the house and I'm relegated to these memories. You know, I am, I am an entity and I'm a, and I'm a businesswoman and I am someone who can be in the forefront and yeah, I can make you a great plate of pasta and make you a great pizza, but I can also run a restaurant at the same time. There's this assumptive association with pizza and gender. Why isn't there a grandpa slice? Why do we infer that the female progeny has to have offspring of her own to make this matriarchal style of pizza? We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll talk to someone who is trying to ascend mastery 
rather than grandmotherhood. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. It used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering, precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some toppings, your Uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at Uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. A martial arts champion in search of the glow. Master, I need more time. I am no longer your master. This is Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. In the 1985 martial arts comedy, The Last Dragon, produced by the one and only Barry Gordy of Motown fame, the main character, Leroy Green, also known as Bruce Leroy, dreams of becoming a martial arts master like his idol, Bruce Lee. While on this spiritual journey, he encounters Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem. Leroy refuses to fight. In retaliation, Shonuff and his gang destroy the Green family restaurant, pizzeria. As a child of the 80s growing up in Rockaway, Queens, Nicole Russell loved this movie so much that she's now dedicated her life to becoming the last dragon of pizza. My friends thought I was having a midlife crisis. They were like, you're doing pizza now? And I'm like, yeah. And they were like, what are you, the last dragon? And I was like, maybe I am the last dragon. I don't know. And then that quickly became my theme and that quickly became, you know, what I wanted to do. I wanted to become the last dragon of pizza, reach the final level, get the ultimate glow. And that's how my journey started. I'm from New York City. And whether you like it or not, pizza is a big part of, you know, the culture here in New York City. So then I'm black and yeah, in black neighborhoods, we love pizza. And then as an American, of course, I love pizza. I love, you know, like Pizza Hut too. And I, as a, you know, as a kid and Domino's. Yeah. But um, I was more influenced by the New York City mom and pops more than anything, because we hardly ever had, you know, Pizza Hut at the time was a dine-in when I was coming up and it, it was a treat. My mother used to take me to work with her sometimes and she used to work at NYU Medical Center. And on the way to NYU as a child, like I'm talking about little, like six, seven years old, um, I used to always look forward to going to her job because I knew that on the way back home, we were going to stop and get pizza. And there was this pizzeria on the corner of 2nd and 32nd, 2nd and 32nd Street or 2nd and 33rd Street. Um, and I don't remember it, but when you went in there, they had all, cause you know, my dad was obsessed 
with like Rocky and all this, you know, you know, I was obsessed with John Travolta and I was obsessed with, you know, Grease movies and Saturday Night Live and all that stuff. And there was this pizzeria and they had like a mural on the wall with all these famous people. And for me, I like, I was like John Travolta and I was like Rocky, you know, and everything like that because my dad took me to see those movies and my sister took me to see like, you know, Grease and Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever rather. So, um, that I used to love, I think it was called Rockies. What's it called? Rockies pizza. I got to look it up. Yeah. That was my first influence because this place was like, you know, a visual like playground for me when I was, when I was young. Back in the Rockaways, Russell had her local, which may have been a classic eighties pizzeria, but it was also the melting pot meeting place of her community. We would get pizza from Gino's pizza was my favorite. In uh, locally in in the Rockaways, um, that was um, off Mount Avenue, like on Beach Twentieth Street. It's still there today, but I don't think the original owners are there. But back in the days, woo, couldn't get a better slice. <laughs> what was your order? What's your go-to slice? Well, my, I was when, well, you know, it was a pit stop for me after high school with my friends, and at the time, you know, uh, we were obsessed with like uh, pepperoni extra cheese and lots and lots and lots of garlic. So we used to put so much garlic on this pizza. Oh my goodness. We loved garlic on, you know, a, a slice. So yeah, we used to have extra cheese pepperoni with garlic. Ooh. And then, you know, we would come home and we would be just so full and do our homework and just pass out. Who were your neighbors? I mean, what was the demographic like that you grew up in? Well, uh, Rockaway is like, uh, it's like, um, so divided in a lot of ways and segregated in a lot of ways. It's not, you know, like, you know, like for instance, where I am in Arvern, there's a lot of strong working class um, West Indians over here, but there's also like new generation, you know, just people that's coming in workers over here. And then you have Arvern by the sea. So that's like a higher, you know, income ratio of people right here in the middle of the peninsula, right? That's where I am, right? Then you go further up, you have a big Irish um, community and a Hispanic community too. You keep going up. And I have to say, those were my biggest customers, biggest, biggest. My neighbors were Irish and they, we loved our neighbors. Our neighbors loved us. Like we, we didn't grow up like that. We did Rockaway change once Playland left. And it became a place where they could just build up housing, more housing, more condos and things like that. And then just piled people on the peninsula and it changed. But when I grew up, we knew everybody. Able to um, ride my bike all the way to, I'm on a, I'm in the sixties and I used to be able to ride my bike all the way to the nineties to Playland and just lay my bike on a fence and go to Playland all day. And Playland, for those of you that don't know, is like our Coney Island. We grew up in a very old, what would now be considered a very old school mentality. You know, like we checked on our neighbors, you know, we were very friendly. It was different. And I I was never home. My curfew was when um, the lights came on and I was anywhere. I wasn't on my block. I was like all over. Like, you know, I had my bicycle, my friends had my bicycle. Nowadays, you see a bunch of kids in a bicycle. You're like, what are they doing? When I was growing up, that's what we did. We got on our bikes and we rode everywhere and had fun. You know, everything has changed, you know, from when I was a kid. Russell uses the movie as source material for her menu. A plain or pepperoni pizza is called The Glow. 
Laura Charles is her margarita, and then there's the Shonuff, a Philly cheesesteak-inspired pie. It's not all shtick, though. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy wreaked havoc on the coast, changing the landscape of Rockaway forever. Pizza was her way of bringing that old feeling of community back. You know, post-Sandy Rockaway is so much different than than pre-Sandy Rockaway. You know, post-Sandy Rockaway, and when I say post, I mean years later, because it wasn't immediate. It was a food desert out here. Rockaway is not known for, oh, let's go out to Rockaway and get a great meal. You know what I mean? We're just not known for that. And, you know, it was like a food desert, and I was craving all different kinds of foods. I wanted Indian food. I wanted a great pizzeria or a great Italian dish or something like that. You know, because what I was finding was like a lot of the pizzerias before, they they weren't really so integral and really caring. They were just caring about their bottom lines. And the the pizza began, began to become cheap, right? Like you start noticing the cheese. You start noticing the sauce. You're like, this is not the cheese from before. This is not the sauce from before. So that was one of the biggest reasons why I started making pizza at home because I already knew how to make breads and I was really great with dough. So I just started to, you know, you know, try my luck with the pizza thing. So I had to develop my own sauce, develop my own style. And back to my menu choices is that because I decided to go with The Last Dragon, you know, I wanted to play on the movie with the popular character names and themes of the movie. So I figured if you found me, because, you know, my business model was like a ghost kitchen, you know, there's so many ghost kitchens now, but my business model was like a ghost kitchen. So if you found me, then you got the glow. So automatically, like you order, you know, the lowest, cheapest thing on my menu, you got the glow. Welcome to Last Dragon Pizza. I really think I am New York pizza, but in a different way. I'm New York pizza in a sense of a melting pot, not in a sense of style of pizza. You know, I am a taste of New York. You know, I have a lot more farther to go on my journey on my, you know, expanding my menu, but I'm a taste of New York. You know, I'm Katz Deli. I'm Russ and Daughters. I am the staple foods that we grew up here in New York, the, the hot dog stand. I'm, you know, the halal people that the carts, you know, I am a New York pizza business, but not New York in a traditional sense of pizza where you think about what a New York slice should be, but flavors. I'm a taste of New York. Russell is currently looking for a brick and mortar location of her own in New York City. And as the first female black owned business in the pizza sector, she's ready for her starring role. Even now, as I go look for spaces, you know, in the city and they look at me and I'm a woman and then I'm a black woman and I'm looking to do a pizzeria. When I just come and introduce myself, they're like, oh, she's she does pizza. Wow. But then when they look me up, oh, she was in the New York Times. Then I get the call back. Right. Then everything changes. Right. And I feel like that shouldn't even be the case. Why can't I just be a strong black woman business owner? What's the problem? Like, why, why wouldn't you think I know how to make pizza? I studied my craft just like you. I work hard. I read. You know, I've had a lot of people that helped me out, perfected my dough. And, then, and, and I've strengthened those skills by reading and researching and practicing just like any other pizzolo. Imagine being typecast like that. Well, many Black Americans are living with that reality. Recidivism is the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. In other words, 
It's presumptuous in all the unfortunate ways, but it's baked into our collective consciousness. Way south of Rockaway in North Philly, there's a place called Down North Pizza. Become a second chance for those formerly incarcerated to have an opportunity with a fair wage in an equitable workplace. Mohammed Abdul Hadi, its founder and owner, and Michael Carter, its executive chef, are on a mission to change Strawberry Mansion, the predominantly black neighborhood in which Down North resides. There's history in this area, though. The childhood home of legendary jazz musician John Coltrane and high school of acclaimed rapper Meek Mill still stand in one of the most underprivileged and underserved areas in Philadelphia. But gentrification is upending those communities, becoming less of a sad song than a real cry for help. The origin story about Down North Pizza is one that started in 2015, actually, because that's when I purchased the building that stands on 2804 West Lehigh Avenue, which is currently Down North Pizza. Kind of didn't know what I wanted to do at the time, but I knew I wanted to do something for that community because going in that neighborhood, you know, for someone that's not familiar with North Philadelphia, it's nothing pretty. So when you look around, you see there's nothing but maybe a bodega, Chinese store, and that's pretty much it. It's a food desert. So at the time, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something for that community. That's when the idea of some type of restaurant came about. And also noticing that when you look at the pizza industry, there's a very popular food item that a lot, you know, majority of everybody in America consumes. However, Black people don't really have an imprint in that pizza game. Square slices seem to have made their mark on the Black community. So it was a very conscious choice for the Down North pizza concept to go Detroit style. Knowing that it was something nostalgic about the square pizza within our community. Growing up, you know, Elio's pizza was a big thing in our community that we knew was like that square pie that, you know, for us, that Friday night, we knew it was a good weekend to come if we had that white box in the freezer. So knowing how we can, you know, combine that nostalgia that we remember and also the trendiness of what the square pizza has become and just the overall pizza world in Philly, has how that's grown within the past five years. How can we marry all that? And also the reducing recidivism, which is the main, our mission, how can we marry all of these things together and make this concoction that could potentially be um, groundbreaking? Its executive chef, Michael Carter, had a similar sentimentality for pizza all through growing up in incarceration, but wasn't hip to be square. And yes, I did just mention that Chef Carter was imprisoned. Pizza may have saved him, and he's hoping it will save others. All right. My pizza history uh, is it always was a favorite. For me as a kid, especially like Fridays in school, we know like that was the best meal you was going to get at school. In jail, it's the best meal you're going to get up there. And I always just been a, a fan of deep dish pieces. And the introduction came to me through like Pizza Hut as a kid, like when we would go to different things. And then Domino's had one. I worked at a pizza restaurant, Neapolitan Pizza Restaurant on 12th and Chestnut. I opened, uh, opened up called Porta. Uh, we was making Neapolitan pieces, like fire off in like 90 seconds <laughs> and in and out, boom, straight to the table, all different types. So like when, uh, 
down north, the opportunity presented itself. I definitely was down because I, I was familiar with pizza and that, right? Just not Detroit pies. The thing about Detroit style pizza, I feel like made sense for down north pizza because, first of all, I'm dealing with a lot of people that don't have too much uh, experience tossing pies into the air and uh, minimum space. So I don't really have a lot of storage able like to store, uh, say, pizza bins that I'm doing like uh, toss dough in. So since I got a part cook off my dough ahead of time, it was like an easy way to teach people a uh, process. A easier way to teach uh, my staff the process of making dough and get them involved or whatever and let them see like the uh, the way to bring the pizza together. So uh, uh, I'm able to train people, train people up in a different way than I would with Neapolitan pizza. I've been incarcerated over 12, 12 and a half years of my life altogether. But uh, recidivism is basically the state betting that a certain part of the population that they lock up will recommit crimes and uh, be back in jail within two years. And that's like the dictionary definition of it. But recidivism is basically forced upon a lot of people uh, from my demographic because they have these parole officers with these extremely out of the world expectations and this rigging a system that's meant to put you in jail because you're a bid, you're a number. They can use you like they have to keep the jails full. You could be you could be sent back to jail for something as simple as a dirty urine for marijuana, because marijuana, although it's legal medical in Pennsylvania or whatever, they'll jack you off the street for it or switch your job and not tell your parole officer. And all of a sudden you have a parole violation. So like that dictionary definition of recidivism being somebody that recommits a crime is not true at all. You can move. Your landlord could kick you out. You can get a new spot and you work a full time job and you haven't told your PL because you see him every three months. And now all of a sudden he finds out that you don't even live there anymore. You can be sent back to jail. The penal system in Pennsylvania is the state's third largest employer. So why is this systematic failure being perpetuated? And why does pizza make Abdul Hadi and Carter feel optimistic about the future? Why was this part of your mission, hiring those previously incarcerated, changing the way the demographic of North Philly um, worked and lived? I always hired those individuals who either had struggled with, you know, drug and alcohol addiction or been formerly incarcerated or had some type of running with the law. And I always seen the value in those particular people because these people, they just want a shot, right? And granted, you give them a shot, they're going to show you up because they know that they've been told no on so many occasions that one person who decides to say yes, they're going to reap the benefits of it. And I've seen this time after time with Down North Pizza. I wanted to exclusively make this environment for people who have been formerly incarcerated. It's something that I hold dear to my heart because I'm living proof, as well as Mike, of giving a second chance what you can do with it. When I first came home from uh, from the penitentiary, my PO basically told me to get a job or go to school. I chose to go to, to the Art Institute. And when I, I had a class and we were talking about the aspect of uh, making a, a, what is it called? A resume. I didn't have a lot of things on my resume. And I thought that I didn't have a set of skills to put on my resume. But there I met a chef and she basically told me I was an expert in mass quantity cooking because 
I worked in the kitchen in, in all these different jails and I served over 2000 people a day. The average chef doesn't make 2000 meals a day. So she basically helped me see the silver lining. And a lot of that is what down North is doing. So I'm trying to teach as many culinary skills as I can to my guys and whether they choose to stay with down North or further their own culinary endeavors or whatever, they'll have a set of skills that they could take with them. And it all starts with their ability to know that uh, uh, they already had a set of marketable skills from the door. So down North pizza is changing many people's life paths. They're also changing the parlance around pizza and subbing pork pepperoni for beef. People from Philly pronounce North with an F, not a TH. North sauce is a, a, a kind of a fiery house-made tomato sauce. Like, I, I like spice. So uh, I heard somebody uh, describe it as zesty before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's this spicy uh, house-made sauce that uh, I put a few uh, unconventional uh, things into it. And it's a hit. We have a lot of contribute to the pizza game, as well as any other uh, uh, culinary avenue. And a lot of times black people get pigeonholed into uh, just soul food. And it's like, that might've been where the story started. You know what I mean? Cause I grew up with my grandmother cooking too. She was one of my earliest influences, but that's not where the story went. Like I actually went to school. Like I'm, I'm classically French trained. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I actually know a little bit, but like, so even, even like with a lot of time with our pizzas, like people will hear the different flavors and they'll be questionable about it. And it's like, listen, we already got a product that's popping. Like what makes you scared to try it? <laughs> My pizza, we name all our pizzas after Philadelphia hip hop songs. And Lil Uzi, uh, he's a, a rapper from North Philly. He has a song called Sauce It Up. So my pizza was called the Sauce It Up. And I put, I put it to the judges at the pizza convention. Like I was getting... All the chefs in the back, they were like, yo, I never thought about putting, uh, I had a uh, sous vide pickle brine chicken, uh, house-made pickle brine. It was like a house-made pickle brine that I just took and I just sous vide the chicken in it. Then I chopped the chicken up. It was nice and tender and I grilled it. And I, that was my protein. And I did uh, some house-made serrano pickle chilies and some cilantro and uh, house-made Thai curry sauce. And that was like that on the pizza. And people were looking at it and it's like everybody in my kitchen told me like this pizza is the shit. So it was like nobody else can tell me it's not. <laughs> so it was like and everybody that tried it, it was a rave review. Like when I did it in the shop, all the, everybody that got the pie, they were like, yo, this pizza is different. Like, And I believe that the pizza industry needs to understand like it's room for everybody. And it's a lot of things you could do with pizza. It doesn't just have to be a margarita. Curtis Evans is a chef, organizer, and educator, but his first instance with Detroit-style pizza was through one of Daniel Gutter's pop-ups, aka Pizza Gut, who now operates circles and squares and cats and dogs, as well as Pizza++++. While Evans chose to use Detroit-style pizza as his vehicle, he often questioned why black communities are relegated to cooking soul food just because they're black. Why not pizza? Or even more poignant, what's more important, the medium or the message? When you think about soul food, it comes from a time of soul brother, soul sister, soul train. It was a whole movement. And this came out of the 60s and 70s, right in the middle of the Black Power movement. How much does 
politics play into who you are and what you cook? A lot of movements uh, for black people came through food, using food as a way to pay your rent, using food as a way to put people through school. Georgia Gilmore, the bus boycott movement, they bailed people out of prison from selling platters out of their homes. So for me, the food has always been a way of political gain. Let, let's say that name again, because I think a lot of people know who Rosa Parks is relative to you know, the civil rights movement and the Montgomery bus boycott, but Georgia Gilmore was just as important. Yes, Georgia, Georgia Gilmore was just as important. Gilmore's group was called the Club from Nowhere to ensure the anonymity of members as well as contributors. While it offered nonviolent support to the black community, it was very much violently trying to be stopped in silence. Chefs now have voices, and their opinions matter past the food they're cooking. Yeah, so I have a friend, his name is Max Tuttleman. He reached out to me. He wants to do pizza parties inside of uh, Philadelphia Elementary Schools through my EMI dinner series. Because Max came to a dinner about preschool to prison pipeline, talking about how kids are deserving of things. You know, they put all these type of rules and restrictions in school. Like, if you don't show up this week, you can't come to the pizza party. Or if your class doesn't get perfect attendance, you don't get a part of the prize. And those type of barriers uh, also force children into an early disciplinary uh, action. The preschool to prison pipeline, it, it, it plays on the numbers when you look at African-American children, they make up over 20% of the early childhood uh, education enrollment, and they make up over 60% of the disciplinary actions. Uh, when you convert that to adult, adulthood life, Black Americans, we make up over 20% of the population and over 60% of the jail population. So those numbers are like literally dead on, like in each perspective of school and prison. So that's the correlation to the pipeline. We just want to go into some schools, give kids some love, you know, and talk to them about, talk about life choices and decisions. Did you ever think pizza was going to be so powerful? It can lead to the conversation at large. Thank you to our sponsors, Uni and Gustiamo, our guests, Tony Gemignani, Laura Meyer, Nicole Russell, Mohammed Abdul Hadi, Michael Carter, and Curtis Evans. Music by Kara Cleveland Sings, Jack Inslee, our engineer, our logo and episode art by Jenny Acosta, and of course, Modernist Cuisine. Our next episode will be all about flour, dough, and crust. What's the secret behind a perfectly charred Neapolitan pizza? Answer, cornicione. That famed leopard spotting that blisters around the edges. But is this a sign of a superior pie or just burnt dough? Whether you like a soft crust with a chew or a nice crisp bite, it's merely a matter of the dough's four main ingredients. Flour, water, salt, yeast. Or is it something more? We'll find out more about the foundations of a perfect pizza from Italy's prized double zero flour, the farms that grow ancient wheat specifically for pizza, to why some pizzerias are trying to grind their own grains. Most importantly, Modernist Cuisine will explore the age-old question, does a slice have to hold the fold?
Many of us will seek out the best mozzarella and be picky about the flour we're using for our dough. But we're kind of on autopilot when it comes to tomatoes for pizza. We grab the closest can of San Marzano's and that's that. But over the last 10 years, I've learned from Bea Treceugi and her incredible importing company Gustiamo that there's a whole world of tomatoes grown in Italy. First, not all San Marzano's live up to their name. Beatrice and her team source theirs from farmers who actually work in the town of San Marzano, where the volcanic soil makes for sweet, low-acid tomatoes. Gustiamo also brings in two other varieties of tomatoes from southern Italy, Corberino and Pianolo, both of which are permitted in the famed pizzas in Naples. These can completely change the character of a pie. Gustiamo has greatly expanded my pantry when it comes to Italian ingredients. Not just tomatoes, in 23 years, the Bronx-based company has been importing regional specialties like bronze-cut slow-dyed pasta made with Italian wheat, real extra virgin olive oil from local olive varieties, aged traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena, and a bright green Sicilian pesto spread that I can literally not keep in my apartment. All of these things are available on Gustiamo's website, giving everyone access to the sort of things that usually only the best chefs can get their hands on. In addition to bringing the best of Italy to the U.S., Gusiamo is doing big picture work to support Italian food traditions, fight food fraud, and advocate for honest Italian farmers and artisans who make their living growing and making food on a small scale, reinforcing the importance of diversity in agriculture. Check out more at Gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.